Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, he would bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The very night when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your mantle around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and told that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are mad. But she insisted it was so. They said, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell this to James and to the brethren. Then he departed and went to another place. Let's pray for just a moment, please. Oh, Father, I pray that you would anoint your word with power. I pray that your voice would be heard over and through and under my word. I pray that everything that I say would be manifestly biblical, true. I pray that hearts would be docile to your leading. I pray that resistance to your word would be broken down through the sweet, irresistible mercies of Jesus. And I pray that people would be helped. And I pray that fellowship at Bethlehem would be made explosive. In Jesus' mighty name, I ask it. Amen. Tom's going to come in a few minutes and lay out the small group vision. And my job is now to give a perspective on small groups that I hope is biblical and that I hope is inspiring for you. I want to talk about explosive fellowship And the reason I called the fellowship that I want to talk about explosive is because life is too short. I feel this increasingly. Life is too short 
The world and the age in which we live is too evil. The people outside are too broken and hopeless for us to be content with a kind of business-as-usual fellowship that has no power, no fruit, no effectiveness, and no explosion. It's just There's just too much at stake to play games today. That's what I'm feeling more and more as I think about small groups at Bethlehem. Believe me, I love fellowship. I love to be together with people of like mind and like faith and like heart and like theology. I love the two to three hours I spend with my main small group every Tuesday afternoon, namely the pastoral staff of this church in worship and prayer and dreaming. I would not trade that fellowship time for any millions of dollars. Try me, millionaires. Life is short. I feel that the meeting I will have with Jesus in which I will give an account for my family and my church is so close I can taste it sometimes. I want so bad to render back a 100% return on the investment of grace in my life that God has made. I can hardly sit still sometimes. When I think about fellowship, the last thing I want anybody to think about is unfruitful, unexplosive, ineffective, non-life transforming, non-powerful get-togethers where we eat and go home and watch television. That's not what fellowship is about in the New Testament. It is explosive with joy, explosive with power. Explosive with ministry, vision, and mission outreach, and life transformation for the people being loved and cared for compassionately within. It's an explosive thing in the New Testament, this thing called fellowship. And it's just become such a blah word in our tradition, it seems to me. And that's sad. And I want everybody at Bethlehem to be in a small group. I want everybody at Bethlehem to be in a small group so that you can taste the sweetness of what I taste on Tuesday afternoons with the staff as we go to our Lord on our faces and seek Him together and dream together how the Lord might use us and share our lives together and pray for each other in every respect. I want that kind of belonging and family spirit and explosive outward bound mentality that doesn't overlook the problems within but is not content to look at them. I want that for everybody. I want that explosive experience for you this fall in small groups. And, you know, I don't care really what you're focusing on in your small group. Frankly, I love to look down this list. I've lost it here. Down the list of, what, 67 small groups? I just went through them last night reading what they're all going to be doing. I said, oh, that's different, and that's different, and they're all different. Here they are. Look at this and this. They just came out of nowhere. It's just all here. And I, I, so I read it, and I said, Lord, it doesn't matter whether they're talking singles issues, marriage issues, focusing on the inner city, focusing on a book by Dobson or somebody, reading the Bible, focusing on the inner city, supporting a missionary. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is that everything in that small group is explosive with joy, explosive with faith, 
explosive with vision, explosive with dreaming, explosive as to why we are here for the kingdom. Oh, how easily we fall into coasting ruts where there's nobody getting on his or her face for 15 minutes before that group meets to say, God, come tonight. God, meet us tonight. God, shake this house tonight. And if nobody's asking, the Lord won't give it. But if you ask, He will come. And I want that so bad for you in small groups. And I believe that I am warranted to have these strong feelings that I have about small groups, not because of some personality quirk of mine, but because there is in my heart, I believe, and in yours, an echo of the noise that explodes out of small groups in the book of Acts. There's an echo of that explosive fellowship in your heart if you're a Christian. And it's in mine and it's getting louder, this echo. And so what I want to do in the few minutes I have is look at chapter 12. But before I look at chapter 12, I want to do a quick survey over about five fellowship groups in the book of Acts and how they exploded in ministry and mission. So, if you want to follow with me in this little survey, we'll go first to chapter 1 of Acts, verses 14 and 15. We'll just jump from one to the other, and I just want to point out the sort of thing that happened when Christians in the first century got together. Chapter 1, verse 14, Luke tells us there are 11 apostles and about 109 other disciples, men and women, gathered together praying. They're together in an upper room praying. After the Lord has ascended. They're doing this for about 10 days, evidently. And according to Luke 24, 52, they not only stay in the upper room all that time, they daily go to the temple and publicly worship. So you got 120 people trooping off to the temple praising Jesus among the Jews at the temple. And then they go back and they pray in the upper room. And 10 days later, as a result of this incendiary fellowship, the Holy Spirit comes down with power. And you know what happened? 3,000 people got saved that day. 3,000 people converted in one day as a result of a 10-day prayer meeting of a fellowship group of 120 people. That's explosive fellowship. Number 2, chapter 2, verse 46. Evidently, the new believers, these 3,000 people, caught on to the pattern of public worship and then home gatherings. Because it looks like that's what's going on here in this verse. Let's read it. Day by day, attending the temple. There's what they were doing. And breaking bread in their homes. There's the other part. They partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. Now, here's the explosion. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They had converts every day. There was something so explosive about the winsomeness and the joy and the freedom and the, and the uh, forgiveness and the zeal and the boldness or whatever it was that was exploding in these groups. People got converted every day. Now, mark this. They must have been folded in every day. That sort of shakes up your small group, doesn't it? Not one new person a month. Every day you've got to find room for new people in your small groups. The kind of mentality that says when God's at work in our groups, people are going to get saved and we're going to have to just find all kinds of wonderful little pockets of shalom and belonging for new people week in and week out. Explosive fellowship. Third, chapter four, verse 31. 
Peter and John had been arrested for preaching. It's dangerous business to be a Christian in those days and increasingly dangerous today. They get out of custody and go to a small group meeting, fellowship group somewhere in the city. And in verses 25 to 31, you hear how they pray for more boldness and more power. And then comes the explosion. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So there's an explosive effect of a fellowship group in a crisis situation where they prayed and God came down and the mouth was open and bold, effective witness was given in the name of the Lord Jesus. Number four, Acts chapter 13, verse two. This is a very different or at least a little different kind of explosion. And it's one that I think is happening at Bethlehem a lot, perhaps even more than the prior kinds of explosion, which I'd like to see uh, not reversed, but the other brought up to speed. Here you have a staff meeting. I like this one because I see myself here. You've got the teachers and the prophets of Antioch. I don't know how many, half a dozen maybe, gives their names there, some of them anyway. And they meet in a, uh, a small group fellowship, worship, fasting gathering. And here's what happens. Verse 2, while they were worshiping, the Lord and fasting in their little group, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The shape of eternity was changed by that small group meeting because the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of our New Testament books and his book, Romans, has had more world impact than any book that's ever been written in the world. And he was commissioned and sent there on his missionary journey so that he had to write all these letters to all these churches that he planted because in a fellowship group, God said, send Paul. Now, that's happening at Bethlehem. And it will happen more because many of us are just going to pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers. And you know where he's going to call them? He's going to call them when you are worshiping and fasting and praying on your faces in small groups. God's going to speak. And many of you are going to hear and move with the Lord into ministry here and into ministry overseas. That's explosive fellowship. One more before we turn to chapter 12. Jump over with me to chapter 16. This is one of my favorites because it's a forced fellowship group of two people in a dungeon and they're singing. And I love, I asked Dean on the way back from leadership retreat, how far back does our knowledge of tunes go? And uh, he said, not that far. And uh, I just love to know what these two Preachers sounded like <laughs> a duet at midnight, all the prisoners listening. Let's read it about midnight. This is 1625. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Picture it. Don't you love it? Ah, I love it. It's hard for me to sing with one other person. See, I can have a choir to cover. But I, I hope that if I were ever put in a dungeon with 
with even Tom, who, who's the worst voice on the staff, <laughs> that you and I would sing, wouldn't we? We would sing. I lost my place. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. This is public praise. This power going on here now. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's fetters were unfastened. Now, here is a beautiful example of two men in a crisis situation who choose to turn the crisis into a fellowship of praise, and God chooses to turn it into an explosion of power. That's explosive fellowship, whether it's just two or whether it would be your small group of a dozen or 15 or six people. Now, back to Acts 12. The reason we go here is because I began here in my reflections and then I spread out to the others. I just want you to note one main thing about the way they prayed and met in Acts 12. The situation is this. James, the son of thunder, has been cut off by the sword, beheaded by the snake, Herod. Peter is in prison awaiting the same fate. Now, picture this. That would be as though we got word that David Livingston last night had been executed at City Hall for participating in the rescue at the Midwest Center for uh, Health Center for Women. And Karen is now a widow, and there are four fatherless girls. And Tom Steller is in the City Hall awaiting the same fate. And what are we going to do? What they did, according to verse 5, was this. So Peter was kept in prison and earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And you can believe it was earnest. But who's the church? The church interceded. Well, according to chapter four, verse four, the church is now 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So you got 10,000 people probably. Christians, new believers over the last months in Jerusalem. And that I think when it says the church is praying, this, these 10,000 people are, are praying. Now, how are they doing that? Well, maybe during those few days during the feast before Peter is to be killed, they had a big rally down at the temple or out on the edge of town. Maybe they went up on Golgotha. I bet that was a precious hill. And they all met and prayed in a big group. We don't know. Maybe. But one thing we do know, the house group network was on fire for Peter. Now, that's what we see in chapter 12, I believe. The answer to the praying is given first in verses 6 to 11. The angel comes and pokes Peter in the side and wakes him up and makes the soldiers not see him and then unlocks all the doors, takes him out. He comes to himself. And then verse 12 says this. This is a key verse. When Peter realized that he was delivered, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This Mark, by the way, is the one who became Peter's interpreter as he went through the Roman world. And he refers to him in first Peter, his letter. So this relationship with this house group that met in John Mark's mother's house went way back in Peter's Christian 
life. He goes to this house and it says, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, many, how many is that? Many gathered in a house. Well, it's not 10,000. If you study archaeology, the little I have would say that the, the biggest, nicest houses in Jerusalem in those days would have rooms in them where you could seat 40 people pretty comfortably. So let's assume they just packed them in that night and there were 60 to 70 people there. That's who's praying. But there's probably dozens and dozens of those all over Jerusalem. I mean, I cannot conceive that only one house group is praying out of 10,000 people for the main apostle in Jerusalem. Can you? I hope I'm not reading in too much here. I just think that's if you've got one house group praying earnestly in the middle of the night here, you can be sure they were all over the place in Jerusalem doing the same thing. And so what I want to simply say is this prison exploded when a network of house groups went on its face to seek That's what I want to happen at Bethlehem. We've got 67 of them ready to go. More will be created through the year. And Tom's going to come in just a minute and say a final word about your participation in it. But let me just close with these summary comments. Can you feel why I am disenchanted with business as usual? Can you feel why, when when you just catch a little survey of the book of Acts, why there would be a craving inside my heart to see fellowship become explosive at Bethlehem rather than business as usual? It struck me with some force last night as I pondered that this was happening in a context of dreadful, horrific persecution. Cutting off a man's head is a horrid thing with a sword. And that's what happened to James, the son of thunder. And they were ready to do it to the rock himself. And I just thought, boy, Father, please grant that we not have to come to the point where leaders are being cut off by the sword before we pray. And before we fellowship like this.